Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. All right, let's play a little game called Famous Bible Pairs. I'll give a name, and you give their pairing. We'll start with uh, David. David and? Very good. Very good. How about Cain and Abel? Uh, You guys are great. How about Esau? Jacob. Someone that sounds a lot like me is getting all of these right away. All right, we'll we'll go one level up. How about King Ahab? Well, Jezebel would be a good one. Yeah, that would be a good one. Elijah, there we go. All right. (laughs) Thank you. And last but not least, Samson and Delilah. So uh, each of these relationships is a relationship of conflict. It's a relationship that demonstrates a power struggle. It's a relationship that demonstrates contention. Um. Some of these people have other pairs. I mean, we mentioned King Ahab and Jezebel, his, his wife, who led all of Israel astray. Um, others, David had a really, really good friend, Jonathan. Probably the most, it, maybe the most significant relationship each of them had in their lives was this incredible bond they had uh, with each other. But so often when we're trying to, to pair up Bible studies and we're looking at some of these characters, our minds are just drawn to the conflict relationships, to the adversaries partly because uh, some kind of conflict, some kind of adversarial relationship just makes a more enticing story for us than a couple of friends who got along great. I was looking through, we're going to be doing the story of Samson this week, and, and I was just kind of looking up what are the most famous Bible stories. And the story of Samson and Delilah, who we actually won't get to this week, but the story of Samson ranked... In, I mean, in the top 20 all the time. I never saw a list of 20 that didn't have him in there. In some cases, he was top 10. Some cases, they had just a list of five top Bible stories, and Samson made that one as well. You know, the story of Samson is one that's really well remembered, and I think one of the reasons why it's so famous in our culture is because he appeals to a lot of our cultural ideals. We have this man who really is only in the Bible for about three or four chapters. I mean, there's not a lot of information on him, but he's one of our top stories because he has all the, all the makings of an American superhero. Uh, he's super strong. Like, we like superheroes who are strong. He's independent. Samson's not a part of some team. I mean, the minute that the superheroes go into, like, the team franchises, I get lost. I know who Batman is. I know who Superman is, but I have... Don't ask me who all the Avengers are or the Justice League. I mean, that's, I don't have time for that. Samson doesn't have a team. The other thing that we really like about Samson, and we read it as we read his story, most of his mission is all about revenge. And I'll tell you what, we are suckers for revenge, aren't we? I mean, if somebody does something, we want to see them pay for it. If somebody does something to me, we want to see them pay for it. I was driving down 14th Avenue on my way here several weeks ago, and, and a car just blows right through an intersection, 
as, as I'm coming, I had to slam on my brakes or they would have hit me. And I thought, man, I hope that guy gets what he deserves. I pulled around the corner. I parked over here. And somebody pulled up next to me and shouted out the window that, hey, I just want you to know I saw the cops pulled that guy over. I saw what he did to you. And, and he got pulled over. And I was like, oh, you just made my day. That guy got what was coming to him. We love revenge. So we love the story of Samson. You know, I was thinking about Samson, and I bet that even today in, in America, you could go out on the street and you could say, hey, what do you know about this Bible character, Samson? I bet there are plenty of people who could tell you at least two things. One, he's super strong, and two, he has long hair. They just remember that kind of stuff. If you went out on the street and asked somebody a second-level detail about a Bible character like Samuel, who's got two whole books in the Bible named after him, if you ask them about someone like Elijah or Daniel, these guys who have whole books to the Bible or, or long portions of Scripture that, that follow them, you, good luck having them tell you anything about them. They might not even be to tell you those guys were all prophets. I mean, they're just, they're, Samson is famous. He's strong. He's a great story for us because he's a story about rugged individualism. And we love stories like that. It's just built into us in our culture to be excited about an individual who can take care of business on his own. Largely because I think we view ourselves as individuals. And if the heroes of the stories can take care of their business on their own, hopefully I can take care of business on my own as well. If the hero of the story can get it done on his own, I can get it done on my own as well. So this story satisfies a lot of things for us. Now, one takeaway from our series on the book of Judges is this idea that God, God's Spirit means to use these stories and has preserved them and passed them down to us to give us an opportunity to reflect on the fallen state of God's people during this period of time. It almost seems like, I mean, we didn't intentionally plan to do this, but it almost seems like it's the Lord that we're walking through this story of Judges during a period of time, the Lent part of the calendar, when we're supposed to be reflecting on the fallen state of humanity and our commonality with our fallen brothers and sisters. You know, it's meant to make us ask the questions, should we be so hungry for violent stories of strength? Should we be so committed to this idea of championing individualism? Should we be so enamored with something like revenge? Are these really kingdom values? And as we look at the story of Samson's exploits today, I really hope that the Spirit will take us beyond the entertaining elements of these stories and even beyond the way that these stories appeal to us culturally just because of who we are. And the, and the Lord will use these stories to teach us something about himself and more importantly, maybe to bring some revelation to us about ourselves so that we can be honest about who we are in this time. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to move in our hearts. Uh, we are people who are hungry for the words of life that only come from you. We're people whose hearts desire to be changed by the words your Holy Spirit would speak to us and the conviction you would bring to us. And so speak to us in this time, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. Uh, last week in Judges 13, we had the story of this angel of the Lord showing up to Samson's parents and telling them how they're going to have a son. And this son is going to be special and set apart to the Lord. One of the things the angel told the parents last week was that their son was to be a Nazarite. 
And so if you were with us, you knew that a Nazarite meant there was three rules that Samson was supposed to follow. Rule number one, no razors touch his head ever. Not the beard, not the hair, no razors ever. Number two, no touching corpses ever. Do not touch corpses. These seem like, that one seems like a great rule for like everyone, I think. Rule number three, nothing from the fruit of the vine. No wine, no grapes, nothing. In fact, mom even has to follow rule number three for him because he's, you know, being formed inside of her womb and by reason whatever she would eat or consume would enter into him. And so even she's not supposed to have anything from the fruit of the vine. Uh, again, no wine, no grapes, no cream of tartar. Interestingly, I learned something this week. Cream of tartar, guess where that comes from? Grapevines, yeah. Now you learned something too. So, uh, And all of this is so that this child can be set apart to the Lord for a really special purpose. The angel of the Lord said to his parents, this child, this person is set apart for a special purpose, and that special purpose is, God's plan for this child is that he would take the lead in delivering the people of Israel, in delivering, actually the angel said specifically, he's going to take the lead in delivering Israel from the Philistines. This child's meant to be a deliverer for God's people. In fact, in the book of Judges, all of the judges that are mentioned are meant to be people who are deliverer type figures. They're meant to be pointing ultimately forward to the great deliverer, the Messiah that's going to become, that's been promised by God, who's going to deliver Israel from all oppression and is going to establish a kingdom that will last forever. And Samson's no exception to this. He was born to be a deliverer character, specifically to deliver God's people from the oppression of the Philistines, the people group that was oppressing them. In that time, this is what Samson was born for. This is Samson's destiny. Does he fulfill his destiny? I guess we'll see. So, Judges chapter 14, we have a now grown up Samson who falls in love with a Philistine woman. Uh, this woman's from the town of Timnah. Timnah is, is actually a Hebrew word that means forbidding. Uh, and so, Samson in the beginning of chapter 14, goes to his parents and says, I want this woman from this forbidden Philistine town for my wife. And Samson's parents, understandably, are asking him to reconsider this idea. Uh, I mean, come on, son, marry one of the Israelites. Don't go to the forbidden Philistine town and choose to marry one of them. But Samson's really strong-willed, and so he insists, no, I want to marry this woman. I'm in love with her. And, uh, and, and then as he insists and his parents relent, the author of Judges adds this line into the story. This is Judges chapter 14, verse 4. It says, His parents didn't know that this, this whole situation, Samson falling in love with a Philistine, wanting to go there. They says, It doesn't know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Every now and then, lines like this show up in the biblical narrative. Lines that give us an opportunity to glimpse beyond the physical world into the spiritual realm and and what is going on. It gives us an opportunity to see maybe what it is that God is trying to do behind the elements and the scenery that's actually happening in the story. And so although it is that this forbidden love interest of Samson breaks all the rules that Samson is supposed to be following. It's counterintuitive to God's desire to, to see Samson set apart as an instrument of deliverance. I mean, he's supposed to deliver them from the Philistines, not marry the Philistines. But even given all of those circumstances, 
the author is pointing us to this deeper reality that God is in there working behind the scenes in this conflict and he's wanting to awaken Samson and awaken Israel to fight against this oppression. This is one of the things that jumped to me, uh, a detail that jumped out as unique to me in this story in the book of Judges. Here we have the nation of Israel oppressed by someone else, but they respond to it differently than they do in other places when they've been oppressed. Up till now in the story, when Israel's being oppressed, the the story goes, Israel did wrong in the sight of the Lord, so this people group came over and ruled over them and oppressed them, and then Israel cried out to the Lord for deliverance. In the story of Samson, Israel is not crying out for deliverance. And what I see in that detail is, is some evidence that perhaps the people of God are asleep or they're unaware to this state of their oppression. They're ignorant to the fullness of their situation, or maybe, and maybe this is even worse, maybe they've just come to accept it. They have no hope of anything being different. Well, I guess the Philistines are just ruling over us. It's just, it's just how life is right now. We just have to accept it. All of that to say, this story is different than the other stories of deliverers. And so it's like the, the author of Judges is pointing and saying, God is using Samson and his desire to be with this Philistine woman, God's using it to wake Israel up, to stir up some conflict, to, to, to maybe paint a different reality for people where instead of saying, well, we're oppressed by the Philistines, there's nothing we can do about it, where people say, no, we've got to do something about this. It ends now. Israel's at peace with their oppressors, but behind the scenes, God is using Samson's disobedience. He's using him wandering into forbidden territory. He's using it all to, to do something about this. One modern application we can take away from that part of the story is, is it possible to be oppressed? Is it possible to be impoverished today without really realizing it? Even asking ourselves the question, am I spiritually oppressed by some aspect of my life without realizing it? Maybe even asking the question, what does it take for God to wake us up from our sleepiness or to shake us out of our own ignorance. And could it be that at times God is using our own vices or the broken circumstances of a world to to wake us up and to stir up some kind of conflict with this mess so we wouldn't just live at peace with our brokenness, but we would truly desire change and and be willing to do whatever it might take to bring about change. So Samson's really sure he wants this woman for a wife. And so in verse 5... He and his parents go down to the city. Uh, We'll start reading in verse 5. It says, As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. All right, this this part's brutal. So they're, they're going to Timnah. It says, As they were approaching the vineyards, a lion comes at Samson. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he uh, is empowered. This is the first time in the story that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samuel, and he is empowered to fight this lion, and he, he tears it apart as, as he might have torn apart a young goat. I, I don't know about, I don't know anything about tearing apart young goats. Um, hopefully none of you do either. I think if we read between the lines here, what we're supposed to understand is he tore this lion apart really easy. It's apparently an easy thing to do. I don't feel like it would be easy at all. I, 
I feel like it would ruin my life. But, you know, we live in a more civilized era. Um, I, uh, sorry. All right, let's not get hung up on the goat. Uh, There's something else that's being here said as well. His father and his mother never know that this happens. So in one scene, we've got the three of them walking together to Timnah. In the next scene, we have a lion happening upon Samson, who is alone at this point, not even within earshot or roaring shot of a lion to know that anything has happened. I think something that we're supposed to notice in here is the fact that Samson and his parents are no longer together. And I think one thing we can safely surmise is that Samson went away from his parents into the vineyards as they approached Timnah. Part of this is confirmed later on when Samson comes back a little later in the chapter. It says he he went aside from the way to go and see the lion. Which means that we're beginning to get a picture here of a Nazarite who's supposed to have nothing to do with vineyards wandering away from the road on the way to Timnah to go and be in the vineyards alone for a while. Now, uh, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know a lot about Nazarites, but what's been here and what we've talked about seems to communicate to me that the last person who should be wandering into vineyards all by himself is Samson, this Nazarite. It seems like he's just asking for trouble. It seems like there's literally no reason for him to be there, but for whatever reason, as they're going to the city together, he decides, I'm going to wander off into this vineyard by myself. Oh, these look interesting. Surely it wouldn't hurt for me to step off the trail and take a closer look. Some of you might be saying, well, let's not rush to judgment on this. It's just a Nazarite wandering through a grapevine field, a vineyard, no harm, no foul. He hasn't actually picked anything or eaten anything or whipped something up into cream of tartar. It's perfectly innocent. And how many times do we say the same things to ourselves when we take that first step or that second step off the trail? How many times do we justify our wandering, saying, well, I'm not actually picking any grapes. I'm just admiring them from a distance. It's really no big deal. I was just curious to see what lies off. I've never wandered off the trail here before. I was just curious what was lying over there. What I love about the story of Samson is, you know, he's this compelling story of humanity. Um, What I hate about the story of Samson is this really compelling story about myself too, right? I mean, I would imagine probably most of us in the room have been there, a step or two off the trail, not really in trouble yet, justifying why we should be here or why we should be doing this. And then suddenly a lion comes out of nowhere and we realize, oh man, I am in a big mess. I've made a terrible mistake. In Samson's story, by the power of God's spirit, this mess that he's made, the lion is dealt with, the marriage is arranged, and and Samson comes back some some weeks later for the feast. We're in verse 8 now. It says, sometime later he went back to marry her. He turned aside from the way to look at the lion's carcass, and inside of it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. And so he scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate, and then he went along, and then he rejoined his parents, and he gave them some honey too, and they ate it as well. But he didn't tell them where he had gotten it. He didn't tell them he'd gotten the honey out of a lion's carcass. I I mean, that seems obvious, right? Like, 
If I scooped honey out of a lion's carcass and fed it to you, I would not tell you where I got it either. Um, but this detail in the story is really important because uh, Samson ends up making a bet with 30 young men. This detail that he didn't tell his parents. He hasn't told anyone. He hasn't told anyone where the honey came from. Because Samson ends up making a bet with these young men who were a part of the bride's city who came and were chosen as his wedding feast companions. He makes a bet with them that he's got a riddle that they'll never be able to solve. And he, and he says to them, "If I'm going to give you this riddle, and if you can solve it, then I will give each of you a brand new coat. But if you can't solve it, then each of you has to give me a coat. Why a man would need 30 coats, I have no idea. Or a robe, each a robe. And, and then he gives them this riddle. He says, out of the eater came something sweet. Or sorry, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. You know, a lot's made of Samson's uh, strength and of his vices and character, but let's just take a moment to reflect on his poetic, his, his poetic use of the, of the Hebrew language that even translates well. I mean, can you imagine writing something that rhymes in Hebrew and English? This guy had it, uh, and we'll, we'll see more of that. Um, anyhow, the wedding feast goes on. The young men can't solve the riddle. They're getting desperate. I mean, they, they don't want to spring for a new robe for this guy, and so they go to Samson's wife, and they tell her, you better find out the answer to our riddle or we're going to burn your house down with you and your dad in it. And she whines at Samson for the remainder of the feast until he finally relents and he gives her the answer. And then she goes and gives the answer to the 30 companions and they come to him gloating in verse 18 and they say, well, Samson, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And then Samson says to them, well, if you'd not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. This is his poetic way of saying, my wife told you, didn't she? Um, okay, he's not the best at poetry, but he has his moments. It says, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. So here in the middle of the feast, they solve his riddle. He says, you've been plowing with my heifer. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He goes down to Ashkelon, and he struck down or killed 30 men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. And then burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. So Samson, burning with anger and empowered by the Holy Spirit, goes, and <laughs> goes to another town, kills 30 guys, and takes off their robes. Which I know you're thinking, full stop there, James. What? He killed people and then took off their clothes? That involved touching corpses, didn't it? Yeah, 30 by my count. 30 corpses. So he's not really following the rules. You know, the vineyard might have been a gray area. Hey, he's just a few steps off the trail into the vineyard. No big deal there. Uh, maybe the lion's a bit of a gray area too. Maybe we mean corpses as people and not, not animals. You know, what if he swats a fly and kills it? Is that, has he broken his Nazaritic vows? Um, but here, there can be no wiggle room. This is 30 men made in the image of God, murdered for the clothes they're wearing on their back. One takeaway is he's broken the second part of his Nazaritic vow, but probably the bigger and, and maybe more important thing is, how does God look at this situation? The murder of 30 men for the sins of their fellow Philistines solving the riddle and cheating, okay. But are we okay with murder? Are we okay with a hero who would do this for some robes? Is God okay with this? I would argue with you that God is not. Part of the reason being that prior to this, when God's Spirit would empower the judges of Israel, they would end up rallying an army and leading that army to some kind of military victory 
over their oppressors. God would would often go before them and give them this military victory, sometimes without them lifting much of of an arm and sword at all. But God would be into that military battle, and he would deliver his people through that. And we see God doing that throughout the Old Testament. This is very different than that. There's a difference between military battles that involve soldiers and civilian murder for clothes. There's a difference in that. And, and even, yeah, 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 sure, they're Philistines, they're Philistines. You know, Philistines are the worst. I learned that in Sunday school. Philistines, the worst. But I really think that whatever God had in mind for Samson, whatever God's plan of deliverance, however it was that he meant for Samson to deliver his people from the oppression of the Philistines, I don't think that it meant murder and robbery in some alley in Ashkelon. I mean, the God in whom there's no evil, the God in whom there's no shifting of shadows, he cannot be guiding Samson on this course of action. We don't see him sanction that kind of thing anywhere. And it's complicated because this brings up that whole idea of how is it that God works inside of humanity? And what, is it, what does it mean for a God who works within flawed people and uses them to accomplish his purposes? God's Spirit empowers people for kingdom work, But that doesn't mean that we can't leverage that empowerment and his gifts for our own personal gain at any time. And we see people misusing and abusing the gifts and the callings of God all the time in our world. Even the word of God itself at times, twisting and abusing and changing it so that I can get a step up, so that I can gain what it is that I want in this situation. Just because one's empowered by God's Spirit doesn't necessarily mean that they're being led by His Spirit into uh, the things that God has called them to do. Our theology, our understanding of the devil and the origination of evil is that God created an incredibly powerful being who had all kinds of authority and ability in creation. And at some point in time, that being rebelled away from God sought to be God himself, and created, gave birth to what we know as evil in this world. That being rebelled with his own God-given power and turned that power and that influence into an evil that resides in this world and can be blamed for everything that you uh, don't feel right about in this world. Everything that we look at and say, this is not how it's supposed to be. I really think that Samson is a story of this same tendency. I think that a man who is using his God-given power to accomplish this kind of evil, murder and robbery, I really think it's meant to be read that way. That this is a tragedy. This man is not a hero. He's an anti-hero. This man is not meant to be lifted up as one of the judges who did things right. Rather, he is a judge who had everything given to him and yet did everything wrong. When the other judges would be empowered by God and raise, raise up a military and go and meet the, whoever was oppressing them in a military uh, venture, the results were very different from what we see in the story of Samson. God would deliver his people. They would be free from the rule and the oppression of these other people for a period of time. In the story of Samson, we, see, we don't see a single claim that life got better for Israel because of what Samson was doing. With Samson, even though his exploits and his victories and the body count just gets higher and higher, 
We never see once the author say, and then the Philistines were kicked out of Israel and everything went well for them. There's no hint of that in any form. Just a record of an ever-increasing pile of bodies. Samson is a story about the tragedy that occurs when a deliverer puts himself before the people that he is meant to save. Story about what happens when a leader puts himself before those who are meant to serve. It's a story about when a deliverer or a hero puts their appetites and their desires before the purposes that God created them for. Samson's victories don't seem to serve God's people in any way. For his next trick, after the wedding, Samson catches 300 foxes. And he ties torches to their tails, and they go and burn all the Philistine crops. I mean, at this point, if you're an animal lover, like, this is a pita nightmare, right? We've got the tearing of the goats. We've got the the burning foxtails. This is awful. The Philistines are so upset by this that they go to his not-wife's family, the Philistine family, and they do just what they threatened to do. They burn, they burn the house down with her and her, her family in it. Samson avenges this loss of his first love by massacring the Philistines. And, I mean, at this point, I'll give that these guys did deserve it, you know. Maybe the 30 guys that lost their robes, not so much. But these guys that have burned a, family, burned a house down with a family in it, like, you know, at least the human in me is like, yeah, give them whatever they deserve, Samson. Just get them. There's this one point where Samson kills a thousand Philistines. He's armed only with a donkey's jawbone, and they've arrested him, and they think they've got him, and, and he breaks the bonds, and he grabs the jawbone, and he kills a thousand of them. And he, of course, writes a song about it. Um, with all of that, there's no freedom for Israel. There's no freedom for them. In the meantime, Samson continues to fall further and further from the ideals of a good Israelite judge. He continues to be impulsive. He's given to these fits of rage. He's constantly pursuing the, the pleasure of the, of the company of Philistine women and Philistine prostitutes. He's violating his Nazaritic vows. The strongest man in this story is completely powerless to overcome his own appetites, his own addiction to self-gratification, his habit of putting himself first. The deliverer has done all these things, and he has delivered no one. Instead, he's become completely enslaved himself. And we see where it's going, right? I mean, especially if you're familiar with the story of Samson, you're like, yeah, God is done with this guy. He blew his chances. The good news is this isn't just a story about humanity's fallenness. This is also a story about the goodness of God. And even in this story of Samson with all of these depressing details, God is present. And despite the mess that Samson's gotten himself into, God is still with him. There's this one point in Judges chapter 15 where after a massacre of Philistines, Samson runs out into the wilderness and he's, he's all alone. And um, sorry, my thing's moving forward rather than backwards. I skipped a page. and um, he, He's all alone and he's out in the wilderness and he's dying of thirst. And he cries out to God and he says, Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. You continue to empower me to kill all these Philistines. He says, but now I'm going to die of thirst and then I'm going to fall into the hands of these uncircumcised enemies. Samson knows how to handle Philistines. He knows how to handle his business when it comes to killing other men. When it comes to using his God-given power and abilities to overcome whatever odds there might be in battle. 
He's not afraid of people. But now here, under the sun, in the wilderness, just for a moment, his pride allows him to acknowledge that he is not as powerful as he thinks he is. In fact, he's helpless. And in this moment, he's come to the end of himself. He's no longer, at this point, he is no longer thirsty with lust for women. He's no longer ruled by his lust for revenge. In this moment, he is truly thirsty. It's not a matter of desires. This is about him and his need for life. And he's like, if I don't get a drink, I'm going to drop dead out here. The thirst that he is now acknowledging is this true, undeniable thirst for this thing that gives life to us. And no amount of, of strength that he might have can wring water out of the rocks that are surrounding him out in the wilderness. And so he cries out to God. And even though his strength now fails, guess what? God shows up. For this brief moment in Samson's story, we, we have this picture where Samson's showing us a picture of something different than what he shows us the rest of the story. This picture of, of humanity acknowledging their brokenness, reaching out to God and saying, God, save me. I've come to the end of myself. I can't do it on my own. My strength isn't enough. My accomplishments mean nothing. I am toast if you don't show up. Samson cries out to the Lord, and God shows up. Judges 15, verse 19 says, Then God opened up the hollow place in Lahai, and water came out of it. And when Samson drank, his strength returned, and he was revived. And so this spring was called El Hakor, and it's still there in Lahai. Sorry, En-Hakor. En-Hakor, it's called the caller's spring. Spring of the one who calls out to God. The narrative says, it's still there. Still there in the day of Judges. You could go to Israel and there's people who would still tell you, hey, it's still here. Come pay the money. Come see it. It's still here. Actually, it's over here. Pay the money over here. It's over here. Come see it. It may still be there. But at least at the time that the, the book of Judges was being written, the caller's spring was still there as a testimony of God's ability to satisfy the thirst of his people in a parched land where there doesn't seem to be any other options. It's not just about God's ability to do that, but it's also about God's willingness to do that, right? At the caller's spring, God brought cold water out for the least deserving screw-up judge Israel ever had. The deliverer who never delivered anyone, the man who used his power simply for his own selfish gain, in this place, to those who had broken their vows, to those who had sinned their brains out, God poured out water to refresh his soul, to save him from death. In this place, God saved the murderer and the thief and the fornicator. In this place, there is a stream of water running, testifying that. It is God who can satisfy the true thirst that we have when we come to the end of ourselves. Unfortunately, in the story of Samson, he drinks from the water, he's refreshed, and in that moment with God, he's, he's refreshed, he's strengthened, he's saved, and then he turns and goes right back to those other fountains that he used to drink from. He goes right back to those other things. His former thirst. It doesn't have to be this way for us, though. I'm reminded of Jesus' words from John chapter 7. There's a story where Jesus stands up on the last 
greatest day of the feast. And he proclaims to the people in a loud voice, and he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, will have rivers of living water flowing from within them. The reality is that because of what Christ has done, no one needs to look for the streams out there to water their souls. But God has sent his spirit to dwell in our hearts, to bring us freshness, refreshment, strength, vitality. So that when our body feels the thirst, the temptation, saying, I need this, I need that, I just need revenge, the spirit's water pours through us and we say, no, I'm not going to drink from those fountains. Honestly, I think part of Samson's problem was that even though everything had been done right to set him apart and to set him up to be this special person with this special purpose, his heart was never truly for the Lord. He drank from the water of the Lord one time, and it took him no time to turn back to those other streams. There was a disconnection in his mind between the rules that he was following and this thing that he'd been created to do, and then the things that his heart longed for. And, and, the, and the hope of the gospel is this, that, that yes, it's not enough to simply do the right things. Our hearts have to be changed. Because if all we're doing is right because we know it's right, that, that's going to be, an, there's an end game there somewhere where we, we eventually wander off the trail and tear a lion apart. I don't know. But if what, when we do right because that is what our heart longs for, because we're longing for the righteousness of God and this Prince of Peace, then then there's a difference in that experience. There's a contentment in that. There's a fulfillment in that that we find that keeps us going. When religion is what shapes our morals and our rules, we are going to lose every time. We're going to wander from the trail sooner or later. But when it's a relationship with the living God and His Spirit dwelling in our hearts, this river of water comes out. And we find ourselves in a place of of being eternally safe and secure in the Lord's presence. So the question is, what are you thirsty for today? And I think recognizing that every thirst that we have comes from somewhere inside of us, an area that is meant to be satisfied by God and is yet to be satisfied by God. And there are thirsts and there are appetites that we have that only God can fill, and perhaps we'll only fully realize that fulfillment somewhere on the other side of eternity, and that's one reason why we long for the day when we're set free from these bodies of sin. But the beautiful thing is that, is that we believe that God's Spirit is here to meet us today and refresh us, even in life here on earth. If it was only for what was happening after life, then then I suppose we would convert people to Christendom and then we would gas them right away. I don't know. But the reality is that God has made us to to be here, present on this planet, embodying his goodness and his grace in the world around us. So how do we do that? How can we be people who live this way? One of the things that I want to give you an opportunity to do is just discuss for a brief moment a few Discussion questions. Oh my goodness, never mind. It's already 11.30. No discussion time today. We'll turn straight to communion. Um, you know, Samson's many thirsts brought him really, really low. But the grace of God was present 
in his troubles to refresh him and to raise him back up. Where this deliverer of God's people failed to deliver God's people, the good news is that even amidst his failures, God eventually sent another deliverer. One who would do it right. And this deliverer looked so different than Samson, even looked different than the other Hebrew judges in many, many ways. This deliverer was clothed in humility. This deliverer walked in meekness. This deliverer came not to serve his own desires with the power of the Almighty dwelling inside of him, but this deliverer came to serve others and to seek and to save those who were lost. Interestingly, this deliverer didn't fight by taking the lives of his foes, but this deliverer fought by offering up his own life as a sacrifice for his friends and for his enemies. And it's this deliverer that is meant to answer the deepest cries of our heart. It's this deliverer who's meant to satisfy in us the deepest thirsts and the longings that reside inside of our soul. This deliverer is Jesus Christ. And when he walked this earth, he proclaimed to the people that he was going to offer to them the kind of drink where if someone had a drink of it, they would never thirst again. He proclaimed to the people that his body was true food and his blood was a true drink and that those who came and partook in his body and his blood would find fulfilling satisfaction in restoration to God. Every, every week we gather before the Lord's table that has been set with bread that represents Christ's body, uh, or crackers in our case, and, and a cup that represents Christ's blood. And, and these things are, are meant to symbolize to us this work that God did and this new covenant that he sealed where God is no longer counting our sins against us. Where that water is bubbling up in whatever wilderness you've managed to wander into and is refreshing your soul. Because your sins don't count against you because God's grace is greater than your sin. Because his forgiveness is stronger than, than your sin. And so each week we come together and we receive what the Lord has done, set on his table. We receive it with sincere hearts and it's just our opportunity to embrace it again, to say, Lord, thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that you have paid it all. Thank you that I can eat and drink true food that satisfies the longings of my heart. Let's pray and then we'll worship and receive to get uh, communion. Lord, we thank you that you are good. And we thank you that even in the story of Samson, your goodness uh, bubbles up out of the ground to give him an opportunity to drink and to be satisfied. We pray that this week, as we would go out into our own desert, out into our own wilderness, whether that's a wilderness of our own making because of poor choices we've, we've made in the past, or, or whether it's a wilderness just because of the fallen state of our world, we acknowledge that we are wanderers in the wilderness. Lord, would you send springs of life into our own wilderness? We pray that the hollow places would bubble up with fresh springs of life. The life that your Holy Spirit brings to our hearts. We thank you for the sacrifice your son has given uh, to finally restore your people to you, to set up your eternal kingdom. We thank you for the deliverance that he's given to each of us. May we be people who live by your streams of living water and never wander anywhere else to satisfy our thirsts ever again. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.